From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we go back into our archives and look at half a century of Vatican II. We talk with our guest, Father Bruce Cinquegrani, about what it was like to be trained as a priest immediately before and immediately in the wake of the Second Vatican Council. He gives us a personal glimpse behind the scenes of a church in transition. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Thank you for being with us today. It's summer, and so we're taking a little bit of a break in production. We're gearing up for brand new shows starting in the fall, but in the meantime, we wanted to listen back to some of the classic shows from our archives. And today we've got a show from 2012 featuring Father Bruce Cinquegrani talking about the 50th anniversary of Vatican II. We hope that you enjoy it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Bruce Cinquegrani. Father Bruce is the Episcopal Vicar for Divine Worship, Spiritual Life, and Catechesis in the Diocese of Memphis, and he is the pastor of St. Bridget Parish. We're discussing Vatican II, which has its 50th anniversary this year. Father Bruce Cinquegrani, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you today. Could you speak a little bit about how you came to become a priest? Oh, a long story, really. Um, it actually began in my... In, in my um, in my junior high years, back in the in the early '60s, um, and I was um, a Boy Scout. And one night, I was uh, got to the Boy Scout meeting at church early. the The meeting room in the basement of the church was closed, and uh, it was a cold, uh, late October night in northeastern Pennsylvania, where I grew up in Scranton. And so I went up into the church because that was the only room inside that was uh, available. And I, um, it was the first time I had been in the church all by myself. I had been there with my parents, relatives, the nuns that taught us in school, uh, other priests. And, but I had never been in the church all by myself. And I was taken by the opportunity to have this intimate moment with the Lord in prayer the Blessed Sacrament, you know, Catholics believe in a unique presence of Christ in the Eucharist that is present in the in the church, in the tabernacle, uh, where the reserved sacrament is kept. And so I was taught that from a young age. And so I, it was the first time I had that experience of being present there with just myself. And so I, I, I prayed and enjoyed that time of prayer and began to do it myself often at lunch hour, when we would have recess at school, I found that draw to the church, to prayer, to personal prayer. And eventually that led me to explore a vocation to the priesthood. And this was, if I may, how many years ago? Well, the, that first experience would have been, well, 1962. Okay, so we're so we're talking about fifty years ago. Fifty years ago, which means that we are we're talking about a time that is contemporaneous with or immediately prior to 
the inauguration of the con- the Council of Vatican Right, II. that's right. It, it was right about that time, actually. Uh, and now that I think about it, it na- that's the first time. I- but it is. It was exactly that month, October 11th, 1962, when the Council was called. And October, it was late October of 1962 when I had that first kind of call experience of, of Christ calling me. Well, now, many listeners will not be old enough to know what the Catholic Church was like prior to Vatican II. But could you paint that picture for us a little bit? Yes. Well, in a way, it's hard to do that because the Catholic Church existed in particular places and circumstances. So the Catholic Church in Europe, it was different than the United States, was different in the sense of how things were actually lived and and the ethos of it. But in general, the Catholic Church as such, prior to the Council, in some ways saw itself as a fortress of truth and of of maintaining eternal truths um and in 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 the face of um the onslaught of modernity and the enlightenment and all that that unfolded in the face of the modern world and and especially the destructive aspects of the modern world with the the two world wars that happened in the early 20th century, but also the philosophical and intellectual challenges of the modern world. Um, all of that challenged the church, especially the idea of a secular world. Uh, and that challenged the church profoundly. And so its first response was a kind of defensive response. And so that was sort of characteristic in, in within ecclesial life um, everything was sort of set. It was a rather ordered, very ordered way of life. Um, the, the rules and regulations were quite clear. You knew what you were supposed to do and what you weren't supposed to do. And, and uh, there was a certain ritualness to it. But, um, but it was a very faith-filled life um, and, and so on. But it was very different around the world in terms of people's experience. In, in Europe... Uh, because of the terrible, devastating effects of World War II, Europe was was devastated by that. And along with it, the church was. And not only in a terms of a structural way, but in terms of intellectually, uh, the church was profoundly challenged. In the United States, it was a different story. Because the Catholic Church in the United States was brought here by immigrants who came looking for a better life. And they came and they brought their religion with them. And so growing up, we lived in sort of ecclesial ghettos in a way, My, uh, especially around ethnic groups. So I grew up in a very Italian world, um, and my grandparents brought the Italian culture with them, and with that came the Catholic faith. And so it was all of the same piece in a way. So if I'm hearing you correctly, mm-hmm. um, in the early part of the 20th century, there were wars and there was also the rise of this sort of new way of thinking, this modern thought. That's right. And the initial reaction of the church was to sort of uh, uh, rein in the ranks. Exactly. And to say, we're going to stand against modernity. Right. That was that, That's exactly right. It, and it was a natural reaction. In many ways, it's probably a necessary one to kind of, you, you know, you have this onslaught that wants to really undermine the very foundations of of in some ways, in some ways of what you believe, well, your first reaction is to regroup and say, okay, where am I in this? And you would send it spinning. And so that was where you were in the period before the council in that regard. 
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back today to a 2012 interview with Father Bruce Cinquegrani. He's the Episcopal Vicar for Worship and Life in the Diocese of Memphis, Tennessee. We're discussing the 50th anniversary of Vatican II and its effects on the Church both then and now. Well, given that initial reaction mm-hmm. against modernity, then we could probably ask, why was the Council called, and what was it called to do? Um, well, the Council was called precisely to respond to that, because after you've regrouped and kind of put your defenses up, and you're hunkered down, then you realize that you can't stay that way forever, that you have to engage the world. And Pope John the Twenty-Third was a, before he was elected Pope, a Vatican diplomat. He traveled worldwide. He knew how the church was existing and living in all parts of the world. And it was clear to him that the time had come for the church to engage modernity, not to buy into it wholesale, but not to reject it outright out of hand either, to engage it and to establish a relationship with the modern world with the idea of, in some ways, transforming it um, from within. Now, you mentioned that after World War II, Europe had devastation in right. terms of its of its experience. Right. And the American experience of Catholicism was fragmentation in terms of these little communities based around ethnic groups. Right. But it wasn't really fragmentation. Okay. I, I wouldn't call it that. Really, that was not my experience. Okay. It was a really cohesiveness in many ways around the ethnic groups, but the under- ethnic groups engaged with each other as well. But one of the things that was consistent throughout the ethnic groups, Italians or Poles or Germans or Irish, whatever have you, was the dogged insistence that the next generation, were, that we were going to be real Americans. Mm-hmm. And so one of the missions, in fact, of the Catholic school system was not only to pass the faith on to us, but to do that in such a way that would send us forth into American culture to make us real Americans in every way to, in other words, to take these children born of immigrant parents or first generation and second generation, the third generation would be mainstreamed in American life. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, if you look around today, you see, um, you know, Catholics mainstreamed into American life. When I was growing up, my grandparents and my parents spoke Italian. We were forbidden to do it because they wanted us to be Americans, which is a very different approach today. And in in some ways, it was unfortunate that they did that, because there was a certain amount of giving up of our culture that uh, happened. So 50 years ago, you mentioned that you had this experience one night in the church that began to draw your heart towards the pastorate. Mm Mm-hmm. And yes. then and then you entered the seminary and were undergoing training as a priest at the same time that these four years of the Council of Vatican II was going on. Correct, that's right. Now, what was it like to be going through seminary at the same time that these major upheavals were occurring as a result of the Council? Well, remember now, it was the minor seminary. I was still in high school, and back then we had high school seminaries. It was like a prep school, like you would have today, a boarding prep school, but we were all... Uh, we were all felt drawn to the priesthood. And so we had a regular high school curriculum, but we lived a seminary religious life. And uh, so that was the context. And yes, going through it was a very exciting time. There was a, a sense of, of um, 
getting news from Rome about what things were happening in the council. And um, I, I don't remember a single professor, priest, teacher in the seminary who wasn't excited about this. It was like a new springtime. Uh, the doors of the church had been thrown open. There was this sense of engagement with the world. And it was a, it was a truly a wonderful time. And of course, the year that I went to the seminary was 1965. And that was the year we began to implement the liturgical reforms, which were the most obvious upfront aspect of the council reforms. Now, for our, our listeners who may not know this technical term, what does the, the term liturgical reform mean? It means the reform and renewal of the manner in which we worship our worship services. And what were some of the aspects of, of that liturgical reform? What changed in the worship at that time as a result of Vatican II? Well, the first thing was that the, that the, that the service was in English. And that was itself rather striking. And prior to, prior that, to that, it was in Latin. Yes. Okay. And uh, you could follow it along in a missal, a little handbook that had the Latin text that the priest was praying on one side of the book and the English translation of it on the other. And, and many of us did follow along. But the, the liturgy, the service at that time, did not engage us directly in it in terms of uh, an active participation. It was It was a different kind of engagement, more as a kind of silent spectator. Uh, although there were some experiments uh, during the 50s to test this out, because you see there was a good 70 to 80 years of scholarship that led up to the council reforms. They didn't, just didn't happen out of the blue, and especially with regard to the liturgy. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to a 2012 interview with Father Bruce Cinquegrani from Memphis, Tennessee, regarding the effects of Vatican II on the Catholic Church both then and now. This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on the thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you as always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2012 interview with Father Bruce Cinquegrani, Episcopal Vicar for Worship and Life in the Diocese of Memphis, Tennessee. We're talking about Vatican II. Now, Father Bruce was trained as a priest immediately before the Second Vatican Council occurred, and he was in seminary during the changes that the council enacted. So he's able to tell us about the very personal aspects of those shifts and changes and his long view of seeing the effects of those changes over the past half century. In 1965, when I went to the seminary, was the most striking change because the priest was now facing us as opposed to turned 
around facing the altar and with his back to us. And there was this sort of engagement with everyone there, the responses and so on. Not At 1965, the entire liturgy was not in English. Parts of it remained in Latin. But, but the responses that we gave were in English. We sang music in English. Um, it was a it was a whole really a very different experience. Now, for you as a as a young person, mm-hmm. having grown up with this this Latin form of worship, to then suddenly switch to English, to suddenly have your voice become a part of the worship service, mm-hmm. how did that make you feel? Well, it was very exciting, but it it was um uh, it was. For me, a part of the whole experience of entering the seminary, because part of the seminary formation also involved other public liturgical prayers that you didn't normally pray in your home parish church. And so it was sort of fit in with all of that. But it was also something I looked forward to. We had heard from 1963 the words that the Mass is going to be reformed, it was going to be changed, and trickling down. Even <clears throat> when I was in grade school, we knew that this was on the, in the works. So it wasn't a shock to me. It was something I anticipated and really looked forward to. That's interesting. I had always, I had always heard, or maybe I had misheard, that Pope John the Twenty Third sort of sprung the, the council and the council reforms on the church, sort of as a surprise. But what I'm hearing you saying is that instead there was a lot of preparation that happened during the 1950s. Absolutely, and including three encyclicals that his predecessor, Pope Pius the Twelfth, wrote in the 40s: one on the liturgy, uh, Mediator Dei; one on the church, the nature of the church, Mystici Corporis; and one on the nature of the of, of divine revelation and uh, and and the sacred scriptures, a divino afflante spiritu. So those three encyclicals from the Pope in the 40s really provided the groundwork. In fact, formed the basis for the for three of the four major constitutions of the Second Vatican Council. And those encyclicals were were pre dated or anticipated by years of scholarship in those three fields, especially in the liturgy and in scripture studies. There had been tremendous advances in study and in, in, in scholarship. And, and so uh, Vatican II was, was really a response to now this accumulation of scholarship and wisdom, which the popes, all the way going back to Pope Leo XIII and Pius X, had themselves requested be done. So this wasn't something out of the blue. That's that's a wonderful piece of information, the fact that, that the preparations for the council had been going on for almost generations. Right, it did, exactly. And even, I mean, in many ways, the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council set the pace for that um, in, in, in terms of uh, addressing major areas in the church. So you mentioned that... that one of the results of Vatican II was changing the structure of worship. Yes. But did Vatican II change fundamental Catholic beliefs? It did not change fundamental Catholic beliefs. It may have... It, what, what it did was give us a new pair of glasses to look at them. And through that, um, I mean, again, the two words that Pope John Twenty-Third used in, in his calling the council and the bishops who gathered, um, the, the two kind of theme songs, you might say. Uh, one, an Italian word, aggiornamento. Aggiornamento simply means to bring up to date. Mm. 
to bring to the present day. And uh, ressourcement, which was a French word from, from the, the um, and it meant to return to the wider sources of our tradition going all the way back to the fathers of the church, a kind of reclaiming of the, of the ancient fathers of the church, um, the first, say, seven centuries of the church's theological tradition. In some ways, the theological work after the Council of Trent, not because of the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent did not in any way insist on this, but just because of a number of things that happened, theologians didn't, were not reclaiming some of that in their theological work. And so this was an attempt to reclaim that. Now, you just mentioned uh, the Council of Trent, and you also a moment ago mentioned Vatican I. Yes. When did those councils happen in relation to, to Vatican II? How long ago was Trent, and how long ago was Vatican I? Well, Trent was in the mid-16th century. Vatican I was in the late 19th century. So the Catholic Church doesn't call these councils very often, it sounds like. No, no. A, a, an ecumenical council, which means a call of all the bishops of the church together to, to, together with the, with the Holy Father to deal with important matters in the church is not something that happens regularly. But it is, but it, but it, it is a major exercise of the church's teaching authority and uh, pastoral care. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Bruce Cinquegrani. Father Bruce is the Episcopal Vicar for Divine Worship, Spiritual Life, and Catechesis in the Diocese of Memphis, and he's the pastor of St. Bridget Parish. We're discussing Vatican II, which has its 50th anniversary this year. There's often a misperception about Catholicism that Catholics are discouraged from reading the Bible, or at the very least that Catholics are wholly unfamiliar with the Bible and what it says. Did Vatican II alter the way that Catholics approach the Bible in any way? Well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. The, the Bible, as a book available to anybody, except just a few, is a relatively modern phenomenon because of the printing press. Before the printing press, people couldn't have Bibles like we do today, um, because the, a Bible had to be hand-scrolled and was very expensive. Uh, in, in today's dollars, I think they estimate that prior to the printing press, a Bible would have cost between a quarter and a half a million dollars. My goodness. So, you know, uh, it it wasn't something that you carried around with you either because you can imagine what all of that text looked like hand-scrolled. So, um, but the other thing is that that um, people were not necessarily, many people were not literate in that day and age, and it, it, the common literacy is also a rather modern phenomenon. And uh, so there were, it was very easy to misunderstand the Bible or misinterpret it, uh, because it has such varying degree of literature in it, poetry, uh, using metaphor, using all, so, so... Catholics were not discouraged from reading it so much as they were cautioned to be careful and interpret it appropriately. Now, with modern scholarship, with literacy being pretty common in the Western world and all of that, that certainly is changed, and Catholics were strongly encouraged to read Scripture. 
Uh, and the Second Vatican Council then affirmed that. It also affirmed that scripture stands in relationship to the whole living tradition of the faith that it travels with because remember the, 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 the Bible as we know it is a product of the church's faith. Um, the church isn't a product of that. So oftentimes Protestantism describes itself as a biblical faith and a faith that grounds itself wholly in the Bible. But if I hear what you're saying correctly, the Catholic Church's position is that there's a tradition that predates the Bible that the Bible arises out of. The Bible expresses the essence of that. It's the fullness of revelation, certainly the word of God, but it is the word of God in human language. And so, um, and within that, there is a, there was a wider oral tradition that travels with it, the, the whole tradition of the faith. And the, the church is through those Christ appointed and empowered through the Holy Spirit to guide the church. So it's, it's really the three kind of, uh, you might look think about it as like a tripod, you know, um, scripture, tradition, and the teaching uh, magisterial call and, and of the church. The three work together in in bringing forth the fullness of God's word in the fullest sense. Because remember, ultimately, God's word to us was not words on a page, but a person, Jesus Christ, and so that person still lives in the life of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Second Vatican Council, in in drawing the liturgy, the worship, into common language, yes. did it also encourage more availability of the Scriptures? Absolutely. Or, or new translations of the Scriptures? Well, the translations, yes, were done, in, in a sense, already were going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, the, the liturgy used those newer translations that were being developed uh, the three would be the the New American Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, and the um, New Revised Standard Catholic Bible. Those would be the three that were most prominent in being developed then. In any case, what the Vatican Council did with regard to the scriptures is provide a more uh, thorough lectionary. The lectionary is the book uh, that tells us what readings from the Bible we might we should use on any given day of the year. And the lectionary after Vatican II, the, one of the mandates of the council reform for the liturgy was that there should be far more scripture in the liturgical service, far more greater, wider selections. So rather than two readings on Sunday, now there are three, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament that is not a gospel, and then the gospel text. And they, they, are, they are done on a three-year cycle. So over a three-year period, Catholics who attend Mass faithfully every Sunday are likely to hear almost the entirety of the New Testament proclaimed in church over a three-year period and big chunks of the Old Testament. The, the, the lectionary cycle is, is um, set forth on the three synoptic Gospels, Cycle A is Matthew, cycle B is Mark, and cycle C is Luke. And then the Gospel of John's texts are inserted on special feast days and special seasons and so on. So you really have an enormous selection of readings. And in fact, many of the other Christian denominations actually took a lead from our lectionary, and many of them use almost the same lectionary. So in most Christian churches throughout, uh, I would say, um, the mainline denominations, 
use the, ma- the lectionary in the same way that we do. Now, when the Second Vatican Council was starting, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you were entering the minor seminary. Yes. And then your seminary training, your formal semer- seminary training occurred immediately after the conclusion of the council. Yes. And, and so you were, you were being trained while all of these changes were going on. Right. That's correct. What was that experience like to be in the midst of that? Um, and, and what, was it the case that, su- that, you know, one semester or one, one period you would have a class and then the next semester you'd have another class and it would contradict the first class? Or what was the experience like? Not, not exactly contradict. I wouldn't say that. Um, but it, it was a circumstance in which questions were raised. Things could be called into, into question that would never have been called into question 10 years before that uh, and examined. Not so much rejected, but asked as, is this valid? You know, is this a, is this a, 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 an appropriate way of expressing this doctrine? It, does this doctrine hold up as a truth claim of the church? And so on. And of course, in the end, it all worked out, but it meant that you had a certain amount of unsettledness. It was a, a, it was a much more uh, challenging, uh, in many ways, approach of theological thinking. The other thing, though, was the question of our lifestyle in the seminary and how we should live and how the rules were going to be. And that was the thing that was sort of a rolling target, you know, it was just, you know, to vote what, you know, what how the seminary horarium was going to be set up. Because in my first years in the seminary, it was very regimented. I mean, you were every single t- moment of the day was assigned something, and a bell rang to call you there. By the time I was in the later period, none of that was. They ha- you had a schedule, and you showed up. If you didn't show up, it was your fault. You know, there was no bell to get you. There was nobody running after to make sure you were there. And uh, it was a whole different approach to the lifestyle of the seminary and and so on. So um, that's kind of how it was. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Bruce Cinquegrani. Father Bruce is the Episcopal Vicar for Divine Worship, Spiritual Life, and Catechesis in the Diocese of Memphis, and he's the pastor of St. Bridget Parish. We're discussing Vatican II, which has its 50th anniversary this year. Well, Father Bruce, in your opinion, what was the most important contribution made by the Second Vatican Council? Well, I would say, in some ways, that still remains to be seen. How so? Well, it's only 50 years out, and there's a lot left to be implemented to really engage with. Uh, a, a major ecumenical council is a huge event in the church that takes a long time to unpack. Uh, the Council of Trent, for example, is m- many of its reforms were not implemented for 100 years after, and there were still parishes and dioceses in the uh, 17th in the 18th and even 19th centuries and some little pockets here and there that had not implemented the reforms of the Council of Trent, uh, where, where it took place in the mid-1500s. So, so um, now with modern communication, the Internet, and so on, of course, I don't think we can think of that timeline, but still, I think there, there's also a sense of really understanding because you, you have to... You have to see the council as something that was truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. The, 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 all of the bishops of the Catholic Church, what was 20 
2,300 bishops called together, that, that's a major thing. And so what yields up from that is something that takes a long time to unpack. And so I think we're still unpacking it. So in that sense, I would say, the most obvious is the reform of the liturgy. And that's the, the thing that Catholics encounter every single time they go to Mass, they go to church on Sunday. It's very different than it was before. Now, many Catholics don't even remember what that was like before or didn't it weren't even alive then you have to be my age or older to really remember what it was like before that but still we're in the process of kind of working at getting it right and and you know it's it, it's sort of like that i would say in a in another level in a theological level is the 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 appreciation of the historicity of the faith an, an understanding that its dogmas and doctrines that its, its language, wherever that dogma or doctrine came from, was shaped by the particular historical circumstances in which it was expressed. And therefore, in order to understand it, going all the way back to the scriptural texts themselves, in order to understand the scriptural texts themselves, we have to understand the social location in which those teachings were first proclaimed, and then the social location in which they were first composed and written down. And all of that affects how we understand it. So you can't just travel through time like the Star Trek transporter and think that you can get it as if it were written this afternoon. Um, And so the, the council in particular set the church in a, the appreciation of history and the historic historicity of its doctrines. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2012 archived interview with Father Bruce Cinquegrani, Episcopal Vicar for Divine Worship and Spiritual Life in the Diocese of Memphis. We're talking about his experiences as a seminarian during Vatican II and the changes he's seen in the last half century as a priest in the Catholic Church since the Council occurred. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. If you're on Twitter... Please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash things not seen radio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you as always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Because it's summertime, we're taking a little bit of a break here, and we're listening back to a show from our archives. This one is from 2012, and we're speaking to Father Bruce Chinquagrani, who is a priest in Memphis, Tennessee. 
Father Bruce was trained for the priesthood immediately prior to Vatican II, and he finished his seminary studies immediately after the Second Vatican Council. So he's had now half a century of perspective on the effects that the Council has brought on the Catholic Church. And he's sharing both the technical and the personal aspects of the Second Vatican Council with us today. So you mentioned a moment ago that you, you thought that there's a long view to take about a council and right. the implementation. And you mentioned that uh, the Council of Trent, several hundred years later, still had parishes that, that weren't implementing the full reforms Correct. of that yes. council. Mm-hmm. So what still remains to be implemented from Vatican II? Are there, are there key things that we need to be looking at on the horizon? Well, I would say it's more in plummeting the depths of what the council did. My field of scholarship is the liturgy, and so I can speak from that perspective first. It's the place I feel more comfortable with as a scholar. The liturgical rites are pretty much set. Uh, As one of my professors said, we've got the house set up, the furniture has been put in place, the pictures have been hung on the wall, but now we have to learn to live in it. And by, by rites, you mean the structure of the, the worship the, what, the structure of the worship service. The, the, the order and the, the, the way it, it's, it's pretty well set. But now, the deeper sense of the spirituality of the, of, of the liturgy. What, what does it mean to participate in a liturgical rite? How do you do that? And because prior to the council, the liturgy was pretty much celebrated by the clergy, and the people may have followed with their missal, but they were not active participants in it. Or they may have prayed devotions, but in any case, it was a relatively personal, a private act of worship, not a public and corporate one. We are still learning how to be that, how to engage in a corporate act so that everyone gathered there is really engaged together in what they are doing, which is the point. And our current pope has been very clear about that because the the one consistent theme about the church of really capturing the sense of the church as a communion is meant to be sacramentally realized and expressed in the liturgical rite that we celebrate in the worship service. So if I'm hearing you correctly... Prior to Vatican II, the service was in Latin, the liturgy was in Latin, and the priests largely faced away from the congregation. Always, absolutely. And and so for parishioners, for people in the pews, it was oftentimes worship meant basically going and watching the clergy do their thing. Right. Watching the clergy celebrate the Mass and receive communion, maybe, and usually pray devotions. People prayed the rosary, people prayed novenas, people prayed on their own. And as I said, many had a little hand missile that they followed what the priest was doing. But often you couldn't really hear what he was doing because it was prayed quietly. In in some ways, a, a, a solemn high mass had sort of three things going on at the same time. The choir would be singing in the sort of backdrop. If you had a, the clergy would be celebrating the actual liturgy at the altar, and people could engage in all of that however they wanted to. But it was essentially a personal and private act that was going on there. And people went, and now, I don't, I don't, want to disparage that in any way. None at all. Um, great saints uh, emerged from that spirituality and and uh, people, people were deeply spiritual. It comforted them. But it was not what the liturgy envisioned. And so as the 
liturgy is renewed through Vatican II, it calls people to a corporate experience, to doing something together as a we. And that's what we have, we are learning to do that. Be, and another another problem that gets in the way of that is our dogged American or Western individualism. Um, uh, and so it takes a lot for the modern Western person to understand what it means to engage in a corporate act together as a we. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Father Bruce Cinquegrani. Father Bruce is the Episcopal Vicar for Divine Worship, Spiritual Life, and Catechesis here in the Diocese of Memphis, and he's the pastor of St. Bridget Parish. We're discussing the Second Vatican Council, which has its 50th anniversary this year. Well, there are some that have been very resistant to the reforms and the changes of Vatican II, or at least they've been very suspicious of its motives. Could you speculate a little on why that's the case? Well, actually, most people don't like changing things that they have a great investment in. Um, And so um, I have to say that even for myself, as a young seminarian going through the process of formation, um, there were many times when I had to put aside a particular vision of what it might be like to be a priest to embrace a newer, a, a more um, renewed understanding of that, of how what what that what that life was going to look like and how that ministry was going to happen and all of that. So yes, of course, change is a difficult thing for us and understanding what's behind it. And so it was natural for that to be the case. So when you look at those sorts of suspicions that others had, those suspicions of change, um, do you yourself or did you have any reservations about the, the changes of Vatican II? Um, I suppose that occasionally I did, but most of the time it was everything was unfolding so rapidly and it, it, it almost was that, that you, you, you really didn't, you, you didn't almost have the time to keep up with it. it. It was so unfolding in that way. But I would say sometimes um, uh, the shape of, of our life and so on, what the identity of the priest, all of that was something that was called into question and sometimes, not by officially in the church now, but but the, the cracking of this sort of monolith um, provided a a fertile ground for theologians to ask questions that they would never have asked before. And it was that kind of thing that was difficult. But for the most part, I was pretty much, I I realized and understood, the more I understood, the more I learned about why the changes were needed, why the renewal was needed, the more I could understand it. But I would say that's the thing, is that if you don't really understand where it's coming from, it's very disconcerting. Well, this issue that you've just brought up of understanding that was that was so you were having these doubts as a priest being formed in the seminary and were having moments when you were looking at at things as you said from time to time you you you'd say i'm not sure about this and then as you studied more you you'd learn more yes what sort of opportunities exist for the laity for the for the members of the congregation that don't have the benefit of a seminary what sort of opportunities in the wake of Vatican II exist to help them understand more fully? Well, it's it's varied 
from diocese to diocese, from location to location. Um, I think in the Diocese of Memphis, which is the Catholic Church in western Tennessee, um, we've had a consistent uh, commitment from the diocesan level on down to providing formation for everyone, for all Catholics. Um, I remember as a major seminary, and now we're talking the mid-70s when I came to Memphis, um, the Office of Religious Education had just inaugurated a diocesan-wide study of the scriptures based on the new liturgical lectionary that had just come out. So we did a Matthew year and a Mark year and a Luke year and a John year and um, great materials were pr- produced. People studied in their homes. It was a great opportunity. But it also means that, you know, people have to sign up and go. And so uh, sometimes uh, that didn't always happen. But the opportunity was certainly there. This is Things Not Seen, and we're listening back to a 2012 archived interview about the Second Vatican Council. After a break, we'll continue our conversation with Father Bruce Cinquegrani. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, we have over 50 shows archived on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and they're all free and available for download. And if you want to carry them along with you, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore all the catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to an archived interview from 2012 featuring Father Bruce Cinquegrani of Memphis, Tennessee. He's talking to us about his experiences over the last 50 years as a priest in the Catholic Church in the wake of Vatican II. So if I'm hearing you correctly, prior to Vatican II, the structure of the church and church education was somewhat rigid and, and there was a lot of authority and a lot of, a lot of uh, sort of expectation that you would follow the authority. In the wake of Vatican II, it sounds like there are maybe more opportunities for involvement, but there's not that authority forcing you to be involved. Instead, it's, it's incumbent upon the parishioners themselves to take the initiative to become involved in the opportunities. Well, that's probably a little too starkly um, Prior to Vatican II, the main format for religious education happened in grade school and some in high school. And that was the catechism in the United States, the Baltimore Catechism, which was the United States bishop's cultural adaptation of the catechism of the Council of Trent for the dioceses of the United States. And you memorized 
question, you memorized answers to questions. And that was how it was done. Most Catholics really relied on their eighth grade education or high school education, but it was still memorizing this. You weren't really taught to think or wonder or think about these things. It was just, this is the question, this is the answer. Pretty much that's how it was done. After the Second Vatican Council, there was a different approach to that. And, that, and in some cases, it was quite spotty. I would say now we're recovering a more thorough approach to that. But except for when you went to school or prepared for the sacraments, nobody was, no adult was forced into any religious education program either before or after the council. It was always an invitation. I would say the in, engagement is a little different. But also, you have to realize that in the United States, in the Catholic Church in the United States, at the dawn of the Council, you had really a perfect storm brewing. Because besides the Council, you had this effort that had been going on in the 30s and 40s and 50s to decidedly push children of these immigrant Catholic families out into the world of America, the mainstream of America. And we bought that. That's what we were supposed to do. Make it, you know, be good Americans. And so there, that necessarily required a kind of embracing of the totality of the culture in a way. So there was that. There was the dawn of the council. And there was the 60s. And all of that came together... So it's hard to say what affected what. It's not like you had this one world before the council and this other world after the council and the council is the created this other world. All these other factors that were happening culturally that would have happened regardless of whether the Catholic Church had the Second Vatican Council or not were going to happen, you know. And so it it was a kind of perfect storm and and the were in a way we're just coming out of the storm a little bit and sorting out what happened, you know, and, um, but not all of the, not, there were many good things that happened, but there were many things that we had to kind of get our bearings now about. And some of that was, had nothing to do with the second Vatican council. It had to do with the American culture, or Western culture happening in the mid 20th century. So as Vatican two moves from its first 50 years into its second 50 years, is there a particular challenge or a particular a particular um, blessing that you see coming out of this this movement into the future? Well, I mean, I see Catholics everywhere, certainly here in this diocese, hungry to understand their faith, realizing that there's more to this than they thought, and uh, I myself have two adult three adult formation classes that I'm. Uh, teaching now of average adult Catholics who are coming to learn about their faith, learn about the Second Vatican Council. One group meets at 5.45 on Friday mornings, and uh, uh, they meet for two hours, and they want to meet at that time because it's before they go to work. So recently, Father Robert Barron, in the last year, published a a wonderful 10 uh, episode video series with great production quality on the Catholic faith. It's a wonderful presentation of the faith. So all kinds of resources are now available to us with modern 
communications and media. Um, and so it's really, I would say, in the last 15, 20 years, there's been an explosion of this, and it's wonderful. Movements within the laity, the, I mean, I, again, one of the things that the, that the council certainly did was affirm the role of the laity in the church, that they were not to be silent spectators in any way, in the liturgy or elsewhere, you know, that they were to take a, a real clear place, especially in bringing the faith into the marketplace, into the places where they work and live and so on. And so... That's all happening. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to see. Well, Father Bruce Trinkragrani, thank you so much for being with us today and for speaking to us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. Father Bruce Trinkragrani is pastor of St. Bridget's Catholic Church in Memphis, Tennessee, where he also serves as Episcopal Vicar for Divine Worship, Spiritual Life, and Catechesis for the Diocese of Memphis. He spoke to us today as a priest looking back on 50 years of Vatican II. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. KWAM is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keja. Jeff Krause engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.